We're on a uh, fifth Sunday here today, which means doing the teaching up front, and then, uh, and then we'll join in a time with some corporate singing and communion together after the message there. Um, welcome to any uh, parents or, uh, or friends or family who are in here for homecoming. We're glad that you guys are here to join us today. Let me catch you up to speed real quick. We have been for a while in a series through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, walking through this all the way from front to back, taking our time in there. But we've recently, in the last um, several weeks, paused for this little mini-series that we're calling In the Beginning. And it's out of Matthew 19. We're talking about issues of manhood and womanhood, of sexuality, and today's singleness, and then we'll talk about marriage and divorce. And, and this little series is kind of occasioned by this question that gets asked to Jesus by the Pharisees in Matthew 19. If you want to go there, of course, we'll have it up on the screen. <clears throat> here's, here's the question, and this is what's kind of launched us into our series here. And the Pharisees came up to him, that is Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So I, I had uh, the opportunity a, uh, uh, about a month ago to go officiate another wedding, to go be a part of another wedding, um, and I did not bring my kids to this one, uh, save us a little bit of disaster this time, but I, I had a chance to do a wedding for my friends, Bo and Charissa Corbin, who are actually here there. Um, they've been students in our college ministry, the table, for some time, and, and so I had that chance to do that with them. Bo and Charissa wanted for their wedding to do an outdoor ceremony. But uh, they knew that there is at least one problem, and that is that they live in Oklahoma. Um, and if you've lived in Oklahoma for more than a month, you know that on any given day, it could be 108 degrees and muggy, um, or it could rain cats and dogs, or you could have a tornado, or even an earthquake. And on some days, you might get all four in one day. And, and so they knew that, that an outdoor wedding in Oklahoma was a little bit dicey. And so they decided, even, even in late September, knowing it could be hot and muggy, they decided to move it. And so they decided to have that wedding in Wyoming, which is where Bo's family's from. And, and so we got to go there. And I can tell you um, for sure that they um, successfully, very successfully avoided a hot wedding. Um, they went up and had this, uh, this wedding in a little mountain town there called Centennial, and I've been a part of a lot of weddings before. I've um, officiated or, or just attended or been in the bridal party. This is the only time I have ever been snowed on in the middle of a wedding. <laughs> Coldest wedding I've ever experienced in my life, and they originally were going to get married on this kind of little mountain bluff thing. They overlooked this valley, this kind of outdoor chapel. Beautiful area, but not only was it snowing in that place, it was also like 40 mile per hour winds. And so we went out there and we tried to, we took pictures there first. And I haven't seen the pictures yet, Bo and Teresa, but I imagine that like if you look closely, you'll see um, frozen tears running down everybody's faces uh, in the picture. It was so cold that we ended up, uh, oh yeah, and those of us who weren't taking pictures at the time, like if you weren't up in front of the photographer taking pictures, everyone else was um, huddled together like emperor penguins trying to survive an Antarctic winter, right? Um, so they eventually moved it to this tent that they were going to have the reception in and put a little heater in there and everything was great. It actually, it was a beautiful wedding. There's something really cool about Charissa walking down the aisle and, and snow coming down as that was happening. So it was, it was an amazing wedding. I, I don't tell you that story to tell you how cold it was, but it was cold. Um, I tell you that story because when Charissa got down the aisle, um, and it was my time to actually share a little bit of encouragement with them from the Word of God to give them a charge, I opened up the Bible to Genesis 2, the exact same text that Jesus quotes in this passage. And I talked to them about this idea of God creating them male and female, and, and in this creation of these two unique people, that they are meant to come together and become one flesh. And I actually talked to them about this verse that comes about four or five verses earlier than that in Genesis, Genesis 2.18. 
which is where, for the first time, God looks down at the earth, looks down at his creation, and declares something to not be good. He looks down and he sees Adam there and he says this, it is not good for man to be alone. So I will make a helper fit for him. Now Morgan talked about that text and that idea a couple weeks ago. If you haven't heard that message on womanhood, you need to go back and listen to it online. Very good. But this idea that I will create a helper fit for him, someone who will come together with this man and they will be one flesh. And and I'll confess to you, though, that, that when I taught at that time, that I felt what I've felt a number of different times recently on that text. I felt this tinge of unease. And the reason why is because I knew, reading that text there, I knew that it was not just married people sitting in that room with us today or in that tent. That there were a number of single people at that wedding. And I found myself wondering, how are they hearing these words? It is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for a woman to be alone. How does a single person hear that when we teach that text? What's going through their mind? How do they hear it when we talk about the people God created them, male and female, and therefore they are designed to come together and be one flesh? How does the, the single person feel when they hear the Bible say in Proverbs that he who finds a wife finds a good thing? When they see in the scriptures the Bible over and over and over again lifting up marriage as a good and right thing, lifting up the raising of children, what does that sound like to a single person? I've actually asked that question some of us have on staff as we've gone through this series. You talk about things like manhood and womanhood and sexuality, and the reality is there's almost no way to talk about those things without framing them up in the context of marriage and family. What does it look like to be a godly man? Well, a godly man loves his wife sacrificially. He, he puts her needs before his own. What does it look like to be a godly woman? Well, a, a godly woman um, builds up her husband with her actions and words instead of tearing him down. She instills a love for God and her children. And, and we've, I don't know if you've noticed, we've tried to avoid going right to that. We've tried to kind of talk in some kind of bigger terms than that, but there's really no way around it. You're going to talk about marriage, and you're going to talk about parenting when you talk about manhood, womanhood, sexuality. So how does a single person hear that? And, and, and how does a single person live a godly life without a family? What does it look like to be a godly man who's single? What does it look like to be a godly woman who's not married? And how are we even supposed to, in view of all that the Bible says about marriage, these good things about it, how are we supposed to even think about singleness? I hope to provide a little bit of clarity on this issue today for just a bit, but I do recognize that there are at least two difficulties in this. And the first is that when we talk about single people, that's, that's kind of Difficult because the reality is that's not just a blanket term that can be applied to anyone who's unmarried. In, in reality, there are at least four different kinds of single people in this room today. There are people who are single because they are probably maybe too young to, to be married yet, high schoolers and those who are maybe early on in college and, and not really at the place to be married. There are those who are adults in their 20s or 30s or 40s or beyond who, who aren't married and they're single for that reason. There are some in here who are, after spending most of their life as a married person, learning all over again what it means to be single after losing a spouse to death and being a widow or widower. And then there's some in here who are single because they are divorced. So there are a number of different categories. And you can actually add to that. I don't know if I would call it a fifth category because this group actually kind of could fit across the spectrum of any of these. But um, there are brothers and sisters, I believe probably in this room, brothers and sisters of ours who, who struggle with same-sex attraction and who are living with these feelings and that they don't want to feel but they have not been able to change. And, and yet they really do believe all that the Bible says about sexuality and, 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 and the way that it does speak against same-sex behavior, same-sex marriage. And so they want to try to be faithful to God's word, but they know what that means, that, that if they're going to be faithful to this, unless some miraculous change takes place in them, faithfulness means a life of singleness and celibacy without a family of their own. 
So it's difficult to speak to singleness knowing that there's so many different kinds of it. The, the other obstacle is this, that I don't fit in any of those categories I just listed. And I'm married with three kids, three wedding crashing kids. <laughs> and so let me just go ahead and ask the question that some of you might already be thinking, then what are you doing up there talking about this? Like, what do you got to say about this? I, I know, Drew, you're probably going to talk about how singleness is okay and it's a good thing and you should enjoy that. Yeah, easy for you to say. Like, you, you found someone. You have the family that I want to have. You get to experience those things. Easy for you to say. You don't know what it's like to deal with the kind of loneliness that I feel. You don't know what it's like to, to have periods of self-doubt and self-questioning where I find myself for months at a time asking every day, what's wrong with me? Why did she leave me? Or to, to sometimes have a little bit of dread inside of you when you even think about going home because you got to listen to all your mom's passive-aggressive questions about your dating life, Right? Even silly things like wondering at what age you're old enough to graduate from the kids' table at Thanksgiving. And these weird kind of silly things that still have a bit of a pain with them. Hear, hear me. I, I, I recognize that not everyone who is single struggles with all that. There, there are people in here probably who are single who, who love being single and who are content and really enjoying that. And, and I really do. I believe there are a number of people in that spot. But I also know I've talked to enough people in that situation to know that for many people, their singleness is an issue of great pain and hardship for them. Something that is difficult to talk about. And I haven't been there. So then what am I doing up here talking about it? First of all, I'll say this. I, I don't know if I really buy this idea that you cannot speak to a given issue unless you've experienced it. Because the truth is, like, we're all broken people in here, right? Living in a broken world. I really do believe that all of us, all of us at the core of our hearts are dealing with the same struggles and issues, be that loneliness or be that pride or be that selfishness or insecurity. It's just that those issues play themselves out differently depending on your context. But still, point taken, I'm, I'm not a single man, and I'm here trying to speak about single things. So to your point, my, my hope is today, actually, that it will not be mostly me speaking. My hope is to kind of step aside and let two single people do most of the talking today, that we might be able to hear from them and their words this morning. The first person is, of course, Jesus himself in Matthew 19. We're going to skip on down a little bit to verse 10 in your Bibles to hear what Jesus has to say about this. What you need to know is Jesus' reply to the question about divorce is so strong, his stance on it is so solid and so kind of strong about the importance of staying married that it causes his disciples to be a little bit taken aback. And they go, man, if that's the case, then, then maybe it's better for some people not to get married. And, and this is how that conversation goes. Chapter 19, verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus says, yeah, you might be hitting on something actually there when you say it may be good to not marry. He says, let me tell you something, and not everyone's going to be able to hear this real well, but there are three different kinds, and he uses this word eunuch. The kind of official definition of what a eunuch was, most of you probably know, someone who had been castrated by others for a specific purpose or for a specific task. Kind of the most common one that is thought of is a eunuch would be um, someone who is put in charge of the king's royal harem. Um, to, to basically ensure that there's no funny business going on, that man was castrated to be put in that position. We see a eunuch like that in the book of Esther. 
Um, and so that was one of the main kind of ideas of what a eunuch was. But actually, eunuchs uh, ended up being in a lot of positions of um, kind of influence or positions close to the king in different empires and different countries. They were often close advisors to the kings or personal attendants to the kings. And one of the reasons for that is that it was kind of understood almost universally that, uh, that people who were eunuchs would be very loyal to the king and to the kingdom for a couple different reasons. One is because that man, as a eunuch, you knew would have no family of his own. He had nothing else to divide his loyalty to it. He wasn't concerned about building up this home and the status of his family and all that stuff. All he had was the king. It was kind of expected that he was going to be loyal to the king. And the second reason is that a eunuch wasn't really considered much of a threat. Like, what's he going to do if he tries to, you know, some assassination attempt and take over the king's spot? Like, he can't set up any sort of dynasty. Who's he going to pass his kingdom on to? And beyond that, they, I think, kind of assumed that most people weren't going to have a lot of respect for eunuchs as some sort of royal authority. They were kind of seen as maybe less than a whole man. So Jesus says there there are those kind of eunuchs, those who have been made so by men. But there's another kind, he says, the first category actually he mentions is those who are born as eunuchs. That is, those who are born with perhaps some kind of physical deformity that that would keep them from being able to consummate a marriage and to be able to bear children of their own. And this would have been a very... Um, difficult thing. This would have been a very shameful thing for a person in a society where your identity does not come from you alone. Your identity is wrapped up in the community, in the tribe, in your family. Your identity comes from the people who have come before you and passed on this name and legacy and the people who are coming um, after you that you have passed the name and legacy on to. And so if, you, if you've been a, a, a person who is cut off in that spot, who, who doesn't allow, uh, who's not allowed to continue on the family name, that would have been a position probably of great shame. And so for Jesus to mention this third kind of eunuch, a person who becomes a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, He's not, by the way, talking about literally castrating themselves, but someone who chooses a life of singleness and celibacy for the the sake of the kingdom. That would have taken the disciples aback. That that idea, choosing singleness, would have been almost unheard of in that culture. Uh, There's the issue of identity, but but also even the idea that they, they knew in Scripture the way that God kind of talked about marriage. They knew that the very first commandment in all of Scripture out of Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. First thing God told human beings to do. And Jewish people were suspicious of anyone who wasn't kind of following that path, someone who remained single. There's one rabbi who lived around the time of Jesus in the first century who actually said, any man who has no wife is no proper man. The Babylonian Talmud, this collection of sayings by different Jewish teachers and rabbis that came several hundred years after Jesus, went a step further and says that any man who is not married by the age of 20 was living in sin. And, of course, this would have been even more unheard of for women. There would be no woman who would plan on or desire or try to live a life of singleness. In that culture, your identity was intimately connected to the men in your life, whether that be your father or your husband. But you didn't have one on your own. And so that would have been unthinkable to just grow up and choose to be a single woman But in the middle of this culture that so highly prized marriage and and so um, viewed singleness as such a lowly thing, Christianity comes in and introduces something radically different. Introduces a brand new way of seeing singleness, not as a tragedy or something to be avoided at all costs, but as something that could actually be good. And we see it for a couple of different reasons. One is Jesus in this text actually lifts it up as such, elevates singleness and says it can be used for the kingdom. And then secondly, because of course Jesus himself, the founder of our faith and our primary example, lived his whole life as a single man on this earth. Don't overlook the fact that that probably would have been somewhat scandalous in his culture. He's past 20 30, 31-year-old man still single and he's a rabbi, he's teaching. Jesus comes in and says, it can be lived this way. It can be done this way. 
Now, you may be thinking, well, yeah, of course for him, he's, he's God. Of course he can live single. That's, that's one thing for him, but for us, first of all, he is also a man, remember. But, but okay, so let's move on to a second single person, and that is the Apostle Paul himself, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the main text in the scriptures that we have on singleness. It's a longer chapter, and so we're not going to get into all of it. We're going to kind of jump around, but we're going to hit on three different sections of this passage, three different things. The very first part of the section in 1 Corinthians 7 is where Paul is going to show us his belief about singleness, his view of singleness. And then the second part, in the middle of the chapter, Paul is going to give the theological foundation for that belief. This is why I believe this, because of this theological truth. And then in the third section, towards the end, Paul is going to talk about the practical reasoning for his belief. Here are the practical reasons why I believe what I believe about singleness. Um, Scott, actually, in his sermon on sexuality last week, you should listen to that one too, um, he took us into 1 Corinthians 7 because the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 7 are about a husband and wife and, and the fact that as a husband and wife, they should be, Paul says, engaging in regular sexual relationships, that they should not deny one another their conjugal rights. And he says, now listen, there might be a time where you agree together to separate, to, to kind of um, abstain for the sake of devoting yourselves to prayer, but that should be for for just a short time, and Paul says, and that's just a concession. I'm not saying that as a command that you have to do that. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, that, that stuff about husband and wife. He says, I wish that all were as my, I myself am, that is, single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So here we see Paul's view of singleness. What does he say it is? Right here he says it is good. If you're unmarried, if you're single, I say that it is good to remain in that. That is, by the way, just as countercultural for Paul to say that into the Greco-Roman world as it was for Jesus to say that into the Jewish world. The Roman emperors actually had established a rule working against singleness. If a, if a young woman was widowed, but she was still of marrying age, she had a two-year window in which she was allowed to stay single before she was supposed to get married. Otherwise, she would incur a penalty for that. Likewise, a, a young man who was of marrying age but was living a single and celibate life was not allowed to receive an inheritance from his family, was not allowed to attend the games, sporting events, kind of a, um, excluding them from social life in some sense. And so it was, it was not viewed as a good option there either, basically unallowed. And just like the Jewish culture, they received their identity from the group as a whole as well. Not something that was in and of yourself. You got your identity from being a part of the family, from being married, from being um, someone with kids. That was critical for them. And a lot has changed in the last 2,000 years we don't really believe that our identity all comes from the group anymore, but that it comes from the individual. And yet, in some ways, not a lot has changed, has it? There may be few areas, like the areas of relationships, of marriage, of singleness, and of divorce, that we feel define us, define our identity like these things. And yet Paul comes in and speaks differently about this stuff. He says, no, actually singleness, he says, is a good thing. You'll see in 1 Corinthians 7 and anywhere else that Paul talks, Paul does not feel sorry for single people. Doesn't see that as a condition to be pitied or, or, or looked down upon. In fact, he says over and over again, it is good. He goes so far as to say here that it's a gift. I wish that everybody could be like me, but I recognize not everybody has this gift calls it a gift. Really? I come from a fairly large family on my mom's side. There's uh, 15 of us grandchildren, and so we learned pretty early around Christmas time that the whole everybody get everybody a present thing just wasn't going to work with that many of us. And so we adopted kind of that system that many of you have in your own family, the whole drawing a name out of a hat. And so 
Every person is in charge of getting a gift for one person, and you also get a gift from one person. You get your one gift. Several years ago, um, we were having Christmas at my grandparents' house, and then we were going around, and everybody's getting their one gift, and my cousin Austin gets his gift from one of our cousins. And, uh, and he, it's, it's this kind of flat thing. It's like an envelope, and so, you know, probably going to be a gift card or a gift certificate of some kind, something like that. And he opens it, and he pulls it out, and he reads it out loud for everybody to hear. And it says something along the lines of, um, in the spirit of giving this Christmas, a, a blanket has been given to a child in Africa in your name. Merry Christmas. Okay. So listen. I, hear me out. I, I believe that, that giving to those in need is a wonderful thing to do. That as Christians, we ought to care for those who are in need. That giving a child a blanket at Christmas is a wonderful thing. But dude... You can't, you can't do that and then tell somebody else that that was their present, right? <laughs> like, I can't, that doesn't fly. I can't go serve at a soup kitchen and then go to my wife and say, you're welcome, honey, that was your gift this year. Um, like, listen, if they asked for that, if they asked you to do that, that's an awesome thing. But you can't just give that to somebody and call that your gift. Literally, at our family, when that gift was opened, people were booing. People literally booed <laughs> in my family. So... If you, if you ever worry about giving a bad gift or whether you're a very good, listen, if your gift has not been booed yet, then you at least, there's at least that threshold that you haven't crossed, right? That's, that is a terrible gift. Some people I think view, or I don't know if you've ever been there before, opened a gift, maybe not quite like that, but opened a gift from, from somebody and you look at it and, and you're trying to be grateful and you're smiling and you're going, oh, thank you so much. But in your mind, you're going, what in the world am I going to do with this? There are a lot of people who, who see singleness like that. Paul does. He seems to call it a gift here. And yet it, it seems to be, as, as many people have put it, the gift that nobody wants. Paul doesn't think so. He says it's a good thing. He says it's a, it's a valuable thing. How? How can he say that? Why does he see singleness as something that is good, as something that I should want to remain in sometimes. Well, the answer to that comes when we get to the middle of the passage where he'll start to kind of lay out the theological truth behind this. Now, we're going to skip down a little bit to verse 17, but just so you know, Paul is kind of going to deal with a little bit um, this idea that was seemed to be prevalent in the early church that there were people who thought when they became Christians for the first time that there were certain things about them that needed to change. So there might be a married person who becomes a Christian, or I'm sorry, a single person who would become a Christian. They go, okay, now that I'm a Christian, I need to find a godly wife or find a godly husband, kind of settle down and start raising kids and doing those things. And, and Paul steps in to say, whoa, whoa, not so fast. And in fact, there were even some people who were married, but their spouse was not a believer. And so they thought, well, now that I'm a Christian, I need to divorce this person so that I can maybe be with a believer now because that makes more sense. And Paul says, whoa, 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 wait, not so fast. That's not how this works. And so he kind of gives them these commands about remaining in the condition that they are. Here's what he says, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of their call un, or already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. This was, by the way, of all the issues of status or of condition, circumcision was the biggest one in the early church. One of the really common beliefs was that if a Gentile became a Christian, that in order for them to like really be a Christian, in order for them to really be a part of God's people, that they also needed to be circumcised like their Jewish brothers and sisters. After all, that was the mark of God's people for 2,000 years. Why would we change it now? And so that belief was, if I really want to be serious, I need to be circumcised. And Paul, throughout the New Testament, fights against that tooth and nail. That is not true. You do not need to change that about yourselves in order to belong to God. 
And he seems to maybe fight the other here that there may have been some who were trying to have procedures done. We know that some Jews would have procedures done so they could fit in in Greek society to kind of remove the marks of their circumcision. And there are some who are maybe doing that. And Paul says, no, 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 you don't have to do that either. Remain as you are. And then he goes on to talk about this other issue of status, this issue of being a slave or a bond servant. Now, you need to understand before we read this that the kind of slavery that Paul is talking about differs from what you and I have in mind when we think of slavery. When we think of slavery, we think of um, the, the slavery that's in our country's history, that that was tied and wrapped up in issues of racism, and, and that was um, fed by going to another country, kidnapping people out of that, and coming over here to sell them. This isn't the kind of slavery that Paul is talking about here. Most slave, slaves in the Greco-Roman world weren't anything like that. They had a whole lot more rights. A lot of times people entered into slavery voluntarily as a means of paying off their debt. I'll work for you for so many years and then I'm not in debt to you anymore. Then I'm free. Slaves could earn enough money actually to purchase their own freedom if they wanted to sometimes. Slaves could own their own property. Slaves could even own other slaves. And so it was a different kind of world, and there was this issue of, should I try to purchase my freedom or not? Here's what Paul says, starting in 20 again, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called as a bondservant of Christ, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And this section here really does give us the guiding principle for the whole chapter. Paul has been saying over and over again, remain as you are, remain as you are. But we see right here when he talks to slaves, that's not a hard and fast literal rule. That if you are, a, if you are single when you become a Christian, you have to stay single forever. Or if you're a slave when you become a Christian, you have to stay a slave forever. In fact, he even says here, no, actually, if you're a slave and you've got the, per, the, the, the opportunity, please purchase your freedom. Be a free man. Be a free woman. So that's not a hard and fast rule. In fact, I think what Paul means when he keeps saying kind of remain as you are, he actually sums it up with a little phrase in verse 21, do not be concerned about it. Were you a bond servant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. In other words, do not be so anxious to try and change your status. Do not be so obsessed to try and become something different in order to be like a real Christian or in order to be more fully who you were supposed to be. Don't be rushed. Don't be concerned about it. And why? why? Why can he say don't be concerned about it? The main reason is right here because he says that label or that status, slave, bond servant, that doesn't actually define you. He says it. Whoever was a bondservant when they're called, actually, here's the good news. That's not who they are. Who they really are is free in Christ. And for those of you who are free when you became a Christian, here's the good news. That's not even your identity either. Your actual identity is slave to Christ. It is not any of those labels or those statuses that define you at the core of who you are, slave or free, single or married. It is Jesus, he says, that defines you. And that's why Paul is able to. This is the truth that undergirds everything that he says about singleness. It's why he's able to speak so highly of singleness in a culture that could not see it that way. Because in a culture that thought that your family and your legacy and the status that came with being a part of that and passing on your name was so important, Jesus steps into people's lives and Paul says, that's who you are now. This runs across the gamut. Galatians 3, he says this in 26 through 29. Now there is no more Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And I think he would add to that married or single because Christ is all and is in all. None of those labels, none of those markers of identity that were thrown around so frequently, he says, none of those define you anymore. Jesus defines you. That's who you are, and this is why I believe that I can stand up here as a married man and talk to single people about singleness, because the truth is, you're right, I don't know your struggle, but I do know you. I know who you are. 
Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, I know that you are a child, a son or a daughter of the king. You are an image bearer who is day by day being renewed in the glory of God. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Singleness is not who you are. Married is not who you are. Divorced is not who you are. Jesus is. He determines who you are. And so Paul can step in and say, don't be concerned about your status because Jesus is the one who gives you new status. And then he'll move on from there to talk about some of the practical reasonings for his belief that singleness really is a gift. Down in verse 27, says this, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. What Paul says, and he does, he comes back to this idea over and over again. It is okay to get married. As much as he's trying to lift up singleness, he says, I don't want you to think that marriage is some like lower level Christianity and that that's just compromising with the world or that's becoming sinful. No, no, no. It really is okay to be married. He says the issue is when a person is married that they will have some worldly troubles and I'm trying to spare you of that. What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain, verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Here's what the early church believed. What we believe today is that with the coming of Christ, all of history changed. That everything um, that was important in the world and everything that mattered so much to everybody else in an ancient culture and honor-shame society and the ability to build up honor for yourself and for your name and for your family and to be able to pass that on to others, to make a great name out of your family, all of that stuff that was so important because after all, that's all that's going to last, right, is my name. When Jesus comes, he introduces a radically new way of seeing the world and Christians from that point on go, no, 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 there's something bigger now. That, that the king has come. And we owe our allegiance to something bigger than that, to his kingdom. And so now there's something bigger than a name for yourself, for your family. Now you have something bigger than just some legacy to live for, or the opportunity to pass down physical heirs or, or a physical honor onto other people. That's not what we live for now. Now we have a kingdom to live for. And he says, Paul says, the time is short. That actually our opportunity to live for this kingdom is urgent. Because we don't know, he says, the world in its present form is passing away. And we do not know when Jesus might return. And so he stacks up, kind of, he kind of goes off on these different ways of living. And he says, so that means, because the time is short, that the person who is married needs to live as though they're not. And the person who rejoices needs to live as though they're not. And the person who's doing business needs to live as though he's not doing business. Now, he's not saying literally that you need to stop living like that. That if you're married, that you need to move out and live like a single person. Or that you need to stop caring about your family. He's not saying if you own a business that you should just walk away from all of that right now and stop doing business. No, it's not what he's getting at. What Paul is trying to to combat against is the tendency for us to get engrossed in things that are temporary here and to not keep our eye on the ball that is the eternal kingdom that we ought to be living for. What Paul is fighting against is he's saying you should not be so preoccupied with your marriage or your family or your business or your dating life or your lack thereof that it keeps you from serving your king. It keeps you from working for the kingdom. And the, the, the problem, Paul says, is, or I don't even know if he'd say the problem, just the issue, is that marriage has a natural way of drawing our hearts and minds sometimes back towards the things that are temporary. Here's how he explains it in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. 
And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure, and here it is, your undivided devotion to the Lord. See, what Paul recognizes is that marriage brings with it, naturally, it brings with it certain limits on us. There's no way around it, and it's not a bad thing. It just is a thing. He says that when, when you get married, it's no longer you that you have to be concerned about anymore. You have another person in your life that you have to take care of and, and be available for, and that's going to put natural limits on the time you have to do other things like serve or be involved or whatever. It's going to put natural limits on your energy. It's going to put natural limits on your finances, on your giving. So that, that's, that's sort of natural that some of that is going to take place. Just need to recognize that. And then also I think Paul would warn that there are actually some really unhealthy things that can happen when we get married. Like this, this natural tendency that starting a family and marriage has that, that causes us to kind of turn inward on our own home and on our own family. To where the most important thing becomes the safety of my family and the security of my family and the stability and the success of my kids and making sure they're in the right school and making sure everything is working out for us to the extent that I close myself off from the rest of the world and from the family that God has given me in the church. And that is a problem. And Paul says the goal for all of us is this, an undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, I don't think he's saying that if you're married, you can't have that. That he doesn't, that if you're married, you just can't fully be devoted to Jesus. That doesn't sound like Paul. He's not going to tell you that it's impossible to have an undivided devotion when you're married. But I think he will say that it's hard. It's going to take extra work. It's going to take extra effort to be those things. And this is why Paul sees singleness as more than just okay, but as a good gift because it gives us the opportunity to, it simplifies things in helping us to live for something greater and to know something greater in our life, God and his kingdom. Elizabeth Elliot is a famous missionary and writer who knew, who knew a lot about singleness and married life actually. She, uh, she didn't get married until she was 27 years old. She was already on the mission field, and she married a num another missionary by the name of Jim, Jim Elliott. But after only two and a half years of being married, Jim was killed by the, the very people that they were trying to reach with the gospel. And so she was left as a single widowed mother and lived that way for 13 years of her life. She then met a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary who um, she married, Addison Leach, and they were married for four years, and then Addison died of cancer. So she was once again widowed and single and lived for four years that way before marrying a third husband who would eventually outlive her. But before she, before she married that third husband, while she was still kind of single for that third time there, she penned these words in a book that she wrote for her daughter, I think they're really good. She says this, having now spent more than 41 years single, I have learned that it is indeed, uh, it is indeed a gift. Not one I would choose, not one that many women would choose. And I think you could add to that men. But we do not choose our gifts, remember? We are given them by a divine giver who knows the end from the beginning and wants above all else to give us the gift of himself. And this is what Elizabeth Elliot realized, that God is a good God who wants to give his people good things, and he has the ability and the desire to use whatever circumstance you find yourself in right now, single, married, divorced, or widowed, whatever circumstance you're in, he has the ability, if you will allow him to, to use that to give you what you need the most, namely himself. And to allow you to form an undivided devotion and be used by him in the ways that he wants to be able to use you. This is why singleness is more than just a stage that you're supposed to get through, college students. It's more than something that you just bide your time in until you can finally get married one day. It's more than just some um, 
trial or ordeal that you have to survive for those of you who are older and single. No, it really can be a good and right and beautiful gift from God, something that he uses to give you more of himself and to help you serve him more. I do believe that singleness can be difficult. I'm not saying that it's not. It can be hard. It can be lonely sometimes, but I also believe it can be beautiful. I believe that it is a gift given to us. My prayer for you is that you will see it as such and that you will use it as such. So let me close with just a a few encouragements or exhortations. I want to give two encouragements to single people in here and I want to give two encouragements to the rest of us. Two single people, here's the first thing I would would say to you. Number one, don't waste your singleness. Don't waste it. Here's kind of the irony is, is Paul says that when a person is married, sometimes they can get distracted and have divided devotion. Actually, that can be true of single people too. There are a lot of single people who can get distracted from the kingdom for differing reasons. Some people get distracted because they love their singleness and they revel in it and, and they, they use it kind of to turn inward on themselves and just think about their own needs and wants and to kind of live for themselves. And, and that's a distraction that keeps them from living the way they're supposed to. And then there are some people who allow singleness to be a distraction because they spend the whole time wishing that they weren't and just wishing that one day they could be married and wishing one day they could have a spouse. Listen, I, I believe that it is okay to want to be married. That is a good and right and normal desire to, be one of, to want to be married. It's okay to want a spouse. What's not okay is buying into the lie that your life is incomplete until you find one. It's just not true of you. So don't spend all your single years thinking that, you, that your life hasn't begun yet. You know, Jesus says in Mark 12, actually, that in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, that people won't be married. They won't be married or they won't be given in marriage. You know what that means? That means that for all of us, the vast majority of our existence is going to be spent as single people. And Jesus would say, that's beautiful. They will you're not going to be incomplete in the new heaven and new earth. When he's redeemed, restore all things. You're not going to be empty. You're not going to be unfulfilled. You'll be everything he wants you to be, even as a single person, which means you can be fulfilled and complete now. Um, second thing, throw yourself into community. Here's another major reason why Christianity was able to lift up singleness as a viable alternative in a world that didn't get it. Because in a world that was so fearful of not having a family, of not being a part of a whole group or community, God offered family to you in the church. God comes in, Jesus comes in and says, you you have family now. You have brothers and sisters. You have mothers and fathers. You You have spiritual children that belong to you. And I don't think he's just talking figuratively or metaphorically. He says, you in Christianity, in the church, you get family. And that is a valuable resource for all of us. But if you are single, it is so valuable. And you need to lean into the encouragement and the support that your brothers and sisters in Christ can have for you in the church. Do not let pride stand in the way of you doing that single people who cares about being the third wheel or the fifth wheel don't let concerns about feeling awkward or kind of the outside keep you from engaging in community with your married brothers and sisters and with families and being involved and being a part of those things throw yourself into community I'll also say this um, all of us every one of us is selfish And there's something about living with people that strips that away from you. Something about three-year-olds that um, force you to not be quite as selfish. And even marriage that forces you. So if you're single, that, that makes community, sometimes roommates, but at least being involved in the church, all the more important. Because all of us need other people around us to strip us of our selfishness and our own overly independent thinking. To the church, to the rest of the church, I'll say this. Number one, value singleness. We need to live in the church in such a way that that people who are single are lifted up as valuable brothers and sisters in Christ, not to make them feel better, but because they really are. Because it's not true. Don't buy into the lie in your own pride, married people, that you have nothing to learn from single people. 
that they can't come and serve you and aid you in your walk with Christ, that they don't have something to give to you, we need to value singleness in the church and find places for it, for, um, for, for singleness to feel like they do belong because they do. Number two, be the family that Jesus promised. If it's, true that a, if it's true that the church is a family, we need to make sure that we're being that. When we ask a single person to remain celibate, don't move in with your boyfriend, don't move in with your girlfriend. God speaks against that. Okay, that's good and real, but we need to make sure that they have family. Do not do what is so easy and so common to do, and that is turn yourself in towards your own family. Open your home up, open your lives up to the rest of the church, to other people in your church. And don't be the kind of couples that only know how to hang out with other couples and that only know how to hang out with people in your own stage of life. That's what the church is, is people who in spite of our stage of life can come together under something more important and that is Jesus himself. Don't turn inward. So we're, we're about to move into a time of communion and I confess to you when I first learned that this was the fifth Sunday, I thought in my mind, what in the world do I have to like connect singleness to communion? How in the world am I going to get there? But then I started thinking about it, and I realized that actually this makes a ton of sense. Because, friends, this right here says nothing about who you are. This piece of metal around your finger, and whether you have one or not, that says nothing about your identity. That says nothing about who you are. But, but this right here this table, this bread, and this cup, this time that we're about to share together, this says everything about who you are. Because it tells you what Jesus thinks about who you are. It's through this table right here that Jesus says to a church full of people who feel like they are undesirable or unwanted. And by the way, that's not a problem exclusive to single people. You know that, right? To a church full of people who feel undesired, it's through this communion that Jesus says, I desire you. To a church full of people who just want to belong somewhere or belong to someone, Jesus says in this meal, you belong to me, church. You are my bride and I paid the price for you. You are mine and, and one day the bridegroom, we believe this, will return for his bride to bring her back to himself. And that is going to be a wedding that I, I, I guarantee you, that's the wedding that you long for deep down in your heart. It's the wedding that all of us long for, that day when the bridegroom comes back for his bride and makes us new and makes us right and makes everything as it is supposed to be. Communion is a time for us to look forward to that wedding together. Last thing, and then I'll step off. When we do this Fifth Sunday communion, it is really kind of common for us to come down as life groups and take communion, which is beautiful. I love that. And it's also common for people to come down as families and take communion, which is beautiful, and I love that. But we did just talk for a little while here about the importance of the church being together. And so I don't know how you're going to work all this out. I'm just trusting you to do it. But here's my request, that nobody takes communion alone today. That means grabbing the stranger next to you by the arm and say, you're coming with us, but you're, at, you're having communion with, you're sharing in the Lord's Supper with another couple or with other single people or, or whatever it is, however you're gonna do that. And I know there may be some people uncomfortable with this, so when somebody grabs your arm, feel free to pull it back and say, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> but the rule is nobody takes it alone here at this time. So Steve will kind of walk us through some stuff we're about to do a song, and then in a few moments we'll have communion together.